The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, enhancing student excellence. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, on a wonderfully bright, sunny, typically Southern California day. Uh, we hear that a lot of uncertainties about life in California, uh, the earthquake being one of the many uncertainties, but there is nothing uncertain about the literary series. Every month we have uh, on this campus a fascinating, creative, interesting writer who will share with us his or her experience, craft, and life of writing. And uh, we have to thank the SMC Associates for that, who make it not questionable or uncertain. Every semester, during the spring and the fall semesters, they will help us to bring one of these writers uh, one a month. And so I'm happy that you are here for another such perfectly expected event. Nothing uncertain about it. Um, I'm Hari Vishwanada. I teach in the English department. And with the help of the SMC associates and the event staff, Jeff and the others, we help put this performance, this show, for all of you, which is really made possible by you, because you keep coming regularly to this room to listen to the writers, to engage with them, the SMC Associates have not hesitated to support this activity. So thank you for coming and continue to come and support um, this series. Our guest this morning was born in Oakland and graduated from the USC film program. But he also mentioned to me a few minutes ago that um, after his stint at USC, he was still four credits short. So he went to LACC to finish that, to take some electives like drawing. So he's very much a part of the community college world, and I'm happy to welcome him back to his roots, so to speak. Uh, Richard Lang, um, he has worked in editing magazines in the music world, but he's primarily known as a writer, a writer of short stories and uh, highly regarded short stories and two novels. Uh, his work has appeared in The Sun, The Iowa, Iowa Review, The Best American Mystery Stories, and uh, he's the author of a collection of short stories titled Dead Boys and the novels Angel Baby and This Wicked World. His new collection, Sweet Nothing, will be released, I believe, in 2015, February, February 2015, uh, by Mulholland Little Brown. He received the Rosenthal Family Foundation Award for Fiction, from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and was a 2009 Guggenheim Fellow. I'd like to share with you an excerpt from his novel, Angel Baby. The waves roll in pale green, veined with white foam like liquid marble, bellies full of sunlight. They rise only waist high before flopping with barely enough energy left to make their runs up the sand. Malone sits cross-legged above the high tide line south of the Imperial Beach Pier and watches a flock of plovers work the swash zone. The skittish little birds chase the retreating waves, pausing now and then to peck the wet sand in search of mole crabs. Richard Lang. Thank you for the introduction, very nice. Uh, I'm Richard Lang. Uh, 
I came to, I've been writing for a long, long time. I mean, since I was a child, uh, I wrote, started writing stories when I was in third grade. I remember writing a story about uh, World War I pilots, and uh, I wrote plays when I was in elementary school. Uh, started writing, I got very into science fiction in high school and started trying to write uh, science fiction novels. And, and uh, then I came to, I ended up coming to USC to go to film school on a scholarship. And it was during that time, I, uh, shortly after I started film school, I realized that I wasn't really as interested in film as I thought. I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't realized that it was such a collaborative art. You know, and when you're a kid, you're just thinking about, I'm gonna make movies, but you don't realize that it takes, you know, 100 people to make a movie and 100 people making decisions, and it's not just your vision anymore. So. I very quickly sort of shifted over and started uh, concentrating. When I took writing classes, I was taking fiction writing classes. And these were undergraduate classes. And my teacher, for all of them, I, I took three, three semesters, was uh, a guy named T.C. Boyle, who's a famous California, well, worldwide famous novelist. And uh, he had just started out back then. He was still, he was a young guy. and. The main thing he did for me, I mean, the classes were sort of workshops where you would write and then the class would read your stories and then they would critique them. And I really hated that because, you know, I thought I was the best writer in the world and I didn't want these idiots telling me anything about my stories. And I didn't handle the, the criticism very well. I mean, you know, I took it and, and, and didn't lash out in class or anything, but it, it always bothered me. But Boyle was a, a really great for me as a mentor because he would always pull me in after class, uh, you know, if things got rough and he would say, don't worry, you're a good writer, you know, you're, you're gonna be a writer, I can tell just from reading these stories, keep going, keep going. And that meant a lot to me because I'd never met a writer before. Uh, the only writer that, you know, I came from a working class, uh, we lived in Bakersfield, outside of Bakersfield in Lamont, and we lived outside of Stockton in a town called Manteca. My stepfather was a welder, you know, my mom was a bank teller sometimes, and uh, it was just, uh, writing wasn't a thing that anybody in my family, I was the first person in my family to go to college, so, and that was like kind of over the protests of my parents, they said, why do you want to do that, why don't you get a job, you know, with PG&E, but I kind of had this dream of coming to LA and, you know, being a different kind, living a different kind of life, and at 17, you know, that's when I I left home and came here and never never went back. Anyway, uh, Boyle had had a similar sort of upbringing. You know, he had come up you know from a rough childhood and you know ended up uh, teaching at this university and he was a real writer. And I was like the only writer that I kind of the way that I thought about writers was there used to be this show called Hee Haw uh, on TV. It was a country music show uh, and they always had comedy sketches on it. And one of the characters was a poet and he had a lisp. And he had uh, funny hair, and he wrote with a quill pen. And he would always say these stupid poems. And that was sort of the picture of writers that I grew up with. That it was this, you know, sort of effete, uh, otherworldly, you know, strange thing. So it was very good when I met Boyle to see, like, here's a guy who, came, who is like me, who came up, he's, you know, he doesn't write with a quill pen. And uh, it's, it's, it's possible for someone like that to, 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 to be a writer. 
So that was like a, a big encouraging. More than you know, encouraging me on the stories was just the idea that it could be done. Of course, then I left college, and uh, I I could have gone on to graduate school. Boyle was going to get me into Iowa, which at that time was a, a very hot writer's school. But I was poor, you know, broke. I mean, I'd been working uh, 30 hours a week at a supermarket while I was going to USC. I was working, you know, full, you know, almost full time at this supermarket, and I was tired of, you know, eating top ramen and and, and all that. And I wanted to try to get a real, a real job, and uh, I ended up, after a couple of years of, you know, working retail and and this and that in bookstores and and stuff, I ended up getting my first publishing job, and that was for a, a guy named Larry Flint, uh, who. Uh, He's a sort of notorious. He's a publisher of Hustler magazine. Uh, they made a movie about him, The People versus Larry Flint. And I was working in a bookstore, and uh, I got to talking to someone, and they said, oh, you went to college? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, do you want to be a copy editor for Larry Flint? So I said, sure. So I don't even know if the copy editor job exists anymore in the world. Looking at the Internet, I doubt it. But um, at that time, you know, you had someone reading things and correcting the – it was a real job. I mean, they had one person doing that who would read and, and, and look for grammar and uh, punctuation and, you know, just generally make things sound better. So that's where I learned uh, how to copy edit was at Larry Flint Publications <laughs> on Hustler, which surprisingly enough had a style book, which the style book is – it's created by the magazine to tell you uh, – what grammar rules they follow, and to uh, and they're not often big. At Larry Flint, it was that thick, and they were mean about mistakes. They would yell at you. It wasn't like some nice corporate job, because it was sort of you know on the lower end of the publishing scale. They had no trouble with coming in and screaming at you if you put in a comma that wasn't where it was supposed to be. So I very quickly became a a good editor, and. Uh, I ended up, uh, he started a heavy metal music magazine called RIP. This was back in the 80s. I ended up becoming uh, the copy, uh, the managing editor of that magazine. And about this time, uh, this is three or four years into my working life, I finally uh, got my life down to enough of a routine where I wasn't sleeping on someone's couch or sharing an apartment. I had my own little apartment, and I was able to finally get down to a routine where I was writing every night you know, five nights a week, because I, I needed my weekends, you know, I had a day job. So uh, I, I began to, that's when I began to start getting serious, very serious about writing and, and working every night. I'd try to work like two hours, three hours, uh, you know, whatever I, whatever I could. But, you know, I stopped going out so much, you know. I, I will say that's one of the best things writing. It kept me out of the bars, because I had a lot of friends who stayed in the bars and didn't turn out so well. But because I, I kind of got this, it became just a, like a, I don't want to say an addiction, but it was a good routine, and I, and I liked the way it made me feel. And even though I, was, I wrote a novel, nobody wanted it. I couldn't get a, even an agent to look at it. I sent it out, and they said, no, we don't, we don't want you. So that was in my 20s. And then uh, I tried to write a couple screenplays. That didn't, you know, that was impossible to get through to anyone, even after SC Film School. And so I just—it seemed like this was going to be a writing was going to be a hobby for me. So I decided that uh, that if it was going to be a hobby, it wasn't going to pay. Obviously, it wasn't going to pay the bills. And I had this decent job that I was doing that 
you know, it, I, it allowed me to have an apartment. Not enough for a car, but uh, I had an apartment. And uh, I decided I was going to do what I really wanted to do in writing, and which I'd always really liked doing, which was write short stories, which is you will never make a living writing short stories ever. I mean, it's not, that's not something that, you know, is even a dream uh, uh, for anybody. Pe most people who write short stories are either professors or they have day jobs, you know, because it's just, it's like, it's one step above poet. I mean, there's no, there's no money in poetry and, you know, there's just, you know, barely any money in uh, short stories. But it was a hobby for me. I wasn't making a living off it. So I did that for 10 years. I just wrote short stories and, and sent them out to magazines. And I don't, I don't, I, I, I guess this still exists. There are these literary magazines. A lot of them are online now. Back then it was print. And you mailed out your stories, and you waited two or three months, four months, and then, you know, they either rejected you or accepted you. In my case, it was rejection after rejection after rejection. And they had a rule back then, which is, has gone by the wayside, that you couldn't double submit, which means you, couldn't, you could only send it to one magazine at a time. So you're waiting. Some of these stories, the, the stories that appeared in Dead Boys, my first book, I had sent them out over four or five years and gotten rejected because I kept waiting for these things to come back. Now it's a little easier. They understand that everybody's double submitting, which I'm sure people were doing back then, but I had this superstition like, I'm going to follow the rules and that's how I'm going to do it. Anyway, long story short, I guess I was about 32, 33 years old and I, I got my first story published in a little magazine out of uh, Louisiana called Cut Bank. I'd never heard of the magazine. You know, never heard of the school that the magazine was from. Uh, probably 20 people read that magazine. But for me, I still say that it was the greatest moment of my publishing life because finally someone who didn't know me, you know, who'd never heard of me, had I'd sent this, you know, out of the blue. They'd picked a story of mine and, uh, and, and published it. And, you know, I got paid two copies. That's what which most of these magazines pay you in copies. Now that they're online, you don't even get that. So, so I, uh, and it just sort of went from there. The next year, I got another one published. The next year, I got two published. And it seems like at that point, I had developed, I finally had taught myself enough to write. I mean, I'd been writing and writing and getting these stories back. And every time I got them back, I would sort of tear them apart and go back into them and, and rework them and rework them. And so... By the, time I, by the time they all got published, the stories in Dead Boys, I mean, they had been, they were diamonds. You know, they had just been, all the fat had been taken out of them. That's my dramatic sound effect. Uh, they, they, all the fat had been taken out of them, and they were just, they were, they were rock hard. And they, so over the course of six, seven years, I started getting, it's like they say, once you get one in, it's easier, because then you have that on your little resume that you, that you send them. So it seemed like it got easier for me, and I started getting published in, in bigger and bigger magazines. Still, these, you know, these journals that 200 people at the most would ever read. But the thing is about those journals is the people who do read them are agents. They're always looking for, they, they're looking for people possibly to represent. So that's the reason you bang your head against the wall with these dumb magazines who sometimes never respond. I mean, they're run 
they're run terribly. If we, if we ran the, the, uh, the Larry Flint magazines like they ran those, they, somebody would be yelling at us every day. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the heads would roll. I mean, you just, it's very unprofessional. I understand that they're, you know, small things in academia, but if I had any advice for the, uh, the, the literary magazine community, it's, you know, be a little more professional. They expect you to be professional, and then they don't, they don't respond professionally. But that's a, you know, that's a, a gripe for another day. Uh, so, it, you know, I ended up, and, and it so happened that an agent read a story of mine in a, a magazine like Georgia Review. And by then, I was 40, 42 years old. You know, like 10 years had passed since that first story. But I was happy that just getting the stories published. I hadn't even thought about, you know, I thought, well, maybe at some point I'll have enough stories together and I'll, I'll try to get a collection and maybe, you know, send that off to a publisher. But I hadn't done anything uh, uh, you know about that, and uh, this agent out of the blue, uh, you know, contacted me and said, "Hey, do you have enough? I read your story. Do you have enough stories for a, a book? Uh, to, you know, we can send to publishers." And he was an interesting guy in that he uh, was a professor, an English professor at UC Santa Barbara, and he dropped out. He said, "I'm not. I, I don't want to be in academia anymore. I'm going to be a literary agent," which is the silliest decision in the world. So he he ended up, he worked for an agent out here as a reader, and that's where he first came across my work. He tried to sell me to her. She didn't want me. So he ended up, uh, I think it was a year later after he first got to me, he left and started his own agency, and I was going to be his first client. And uh, so I was happy. Nobody would ever, ever wanted me before. So you know, I said, sure, I'll do that. So we got the collection together of all the stories that I'd published and, and you know, uh, that, that had been in magazines. And he said, well, wait a minute, though. I need a novel, too. <laughs> I mean, and I didn't have, you know, I mean, he said, I need a novel because I can't sell. No publisher will buy a book of short stories on its own. They want a novel to follow it up uh, because that's where the big sales are, supposedly. And you just have more chance to build an audience. So I said, oh, okay, well, uh, let me see what I can do. And I, had, I did not want to be a novelist. I had ne you know, I'd written one bad novel in my 20s. So I sat down and uh, wrote uh, the first third of a novel. It was about a big earthquake in L.A. and all these characters dealing with it. And it, it wasn't very good. But uh, he, he took that. He said, okay, now we have this. That took another year. So a year later, he took it out and he said, okay, now we have the short stories. We have the the novel, the partial novel, and we're going to go out and sell this. Well, the publishers loved the short stories. There was like, you know, five publishers wanted the short stories. Nobody wanted the novel. They, you know, they thought it, was, they, it wasn't good enough and blah, blah, blah. So we were in a dilemma. I had to pitch. They said they want to hear another idea for a novel. So I had to pitch a, a novel over the phone to these people and, you know, like it, 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 within like two days, so I just came up with this idea uh, for my. It was my first novel. It was called This Wicked World, and I, all I said was, you know, I, I don't even remember. I just said it's going to be about dog fighting and uh, counterfeit money and drugs and set in the desert and in L.A. And they said, you know, the publisher said, okay, let's do that. <laughs> so there was a bidding war, and I ended up. They bought both books, but I had not written a word of the novel. They didn't know, you know, they'd seen that I wasn't, I hadn't written a very good novel. I don't know why they took the bet, but they bet on me to do it. So then, it's a terrifying moment, I had to sit down and write a novel. And being a short story writer, 
and my short stories are different, very, very different from my novels. They're more impressionistic. They don't have a, a real plot. They're more about creating moments uh, than than moving. It's, it's moving the reader through an emotional experience more than a physical uh, experience, a physical experience of moving a plot. So I had, when it came time to write this novel, I said, well, I need to figure out how to do a plot. And I said, I know, I'm gonna, I want to I find something that uh, is, is a, a classic plot that I can just graft onto that all the things that, I wanna, that I'm interested in, which was the dog fighting, the drugs, the, you know, the bad people. You know, I, I like to write about bad people. And so I uh, came up, you know, I said, well, there's the murder mystery where someone dies in the beginning and then you find out at the end uh, who did it. And I go, that's a, that's a good basic skeleton onto which I can graft uh, all, of, all of my obsessions that, that, that I'd been dealing with in my short stories and stuff. And that's how I sat down and began to write the novel. Of course, I wasn't very good. I mean, you found out who killed the person by chapter three. You know, you, you knew everything that had happened. And so it was sort of this weird, a, a, a weird uh, combination of a whodunit and a, a literary book. In fact, you know, that's where they've kind of pegged me now is, is they call it literary crime or the new noir. You know, that's, those are sales terms that they, that they use. I'm just writing what I want to write and trying to figure out how to, you know, do these plots. So, you know, that book came out. It, uh, it confused some people. Like the earlier readers who were into the short stories uh, were sort of like couldn't figure it out because it was uh, sort of a genre book. And the genre people, they didn't really like it because it was too literary. So I ended up in this middle ground where, you know, where, where I am now. And, you know, I'm happy being here. It's, 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 it's just it's where I am. I don't feel like going one way or the other. And I've been offered things, you know, where, you know, do you want to write a series of novels about this? And I don't want to do that. So at this point, two novels and two books of short stories into the career, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in this weird middle ground that, that you know, I, I'll have to learn to deal with. Anyway, that book came out, did okay. And then uh, that's led to, you know, the, the, the thing. I, I, I won a Guggenheim, uh, which was some extra money. And since I had that money, I decided. Shortly after I signed the two-book deal, uh, my the ma I'd been working on a magazine called Radio and Records. It was a trade newspaper uh, about the radio industry. I did that for ten years. And uh, shortly after that, after I signed my deal, that magazine shut down. So I, w I was out of a job uh, right then. But I had my money from my advance. It wasn't much, but it was enough to keep me going. You know, enough to write another book. So uh, that, uh, after I got that, then I got a, a, the Guggenheim. That was a little more money. So I decided, well, you know what I'm going to do after the first novel? So I'm going to go back and write more short stories, which is a terrible decision, and which my publisher was completely upset. Like, why are you doing that? You're supposed to now just keep writing novels. You get one book of short stories at the beginning, and then you write novels, and you build your audience. And every time we see the sales going up and up and up, but I, you know, I said, I didn't, I, I worked at the day job till I was like 43 years old, and I said, I, I didn't quit a day job in order to just do another day job where I'm doing things that I don't want to do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I want to do. And I, so I spent a year writing short stories again, which became 
They're the stories that are going to be in the new book, uh, Sweet Nothing. The, they're half of them. And then I did run out of money. So I had to write another novel. And I sat down to write this one, Angel Baby. And I said, I want to think of a plot that's even simpler than that other one. Because that, you know, that one I didn't even handle very well. So if I can get it super simple, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll really be able to knock it out of the park. I can put... I wanted to write about Tijuana, you know, I wanted to write about prison, uh, I wanted to write about drugs, and so I said, I'm going to come up with a plot I can lay that onto. And how th this uh, book began was that there was an article in the LA Times about a, uh, a white guy who was living in, T in San Diego, but he would go over the border to Tijuana and smuggle Mexicans over the border for a Mexican coyote, you know, a, a smuggler guy. So, uh, and he, had, he was this weird guy, had a drug habit, and then he supported his drug habit by doing this. But the theory was that because he was white, he'd be less likely to be pulled over bringing, the, bringing people over. So I read that a long time ago, and I said, ah, someday I'm going to use that. I'll write a short story about that, or I'm going to, you know. And it ended up, he became uh, the character of Malone in this novel, and the, the novel sort of grew up around that. And the structure that I chose was a chase, because that's, a very simple, you know, they're running, they start running at the beginning, and at the end, the chase ends. So I had this very simple arc that I could then graft onto all the things that I wanted to do, which is write, I, I write a lot more about character than plot. I mean, that's, that's my obsession. Plot, like, as you can, as I'm telling you, is secondary. You know, I just say, oh, I'll do a chase. But, you know, you want to keep people entertained. That's one thing I learned writing a plot is that, yeah, I don't get to be as free and easy as I am in the stories. It's like it's almost like you're on this train and you have to hit these stations at a certain time. So you don't really have time to step out, smoke a cigarette, look at the sunset. I mean, you've, you've got to, it, it, the contract that at least that I make with the, the, con, the contract that I make with my readers, at least in the uh, I get it in the novel is that, uh, you know, I am going to entertain you. You know, I'm going to, because I like novels that have, you know, that, that pull me along. You know, these, these days I, 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 I like novels like that more. So, you know, that's the contract. But then you have to listen to me when I babble on about, you know, the history of a Tijuana prison for a few pages or go into someone's background. I mean, but, you know, the, the, the contract I'm making is that there, w that, that there will be action to keep you moving through it. You know, it's not going to be... Uh, you know, 30 pages on a sunset. You know, there, there, there will be things happening. So uh, with that in mind, I sat down and uh, I wrote Angel Baby. And maybe now I'll just uh, read the first chapter just so you can see uh, what happened. I mean, it starts off with a bang, uh, which was my intention. So this will take about uh, 10 minutes. I'm trying to... We have until when? 12.30? Plenty of time. Okay, this is chapter one of Angel Baby. It's a story of uh, Luz, who is a Mexican uh, girl, woman, young woman, 21, 22, who uh, moved to L.A. She ran away to L.A. from Tijuana when she was like 13, came here, lived with her aunt, had a kid, and uh, ended up falling in with a bad crowd in L.A. and went back to Tijuana with this sort of mid-level drug lord guy. 
And as the story opens, she's been married to him for a few years. She left her child, her infant child behind in, uh, in L.A., uh, thinking that she would get, this guy was going to pay her, and she would do this for a couple years, get enough money, and come back to her daughter with, you know, so they could stop living in a garage at her aunt's house. So in, uh, they live in Compton. So uh, it didn't turn out that way. When she got there, the marriage turned out to be very abusive. This guy, her husband is a, a real sicko. So after two years of this, she decides she's going to escape and go back to her kid no matter what it takes. And uh, the story, as I said, is a chase. The first chapter, she gets away. And then we follow her journey as she makes her way from TJ back to Compton. Along the way, she meets this smuggler. And uh, there's also a uh, an ex, like, gang enforcer for the, the drug lord who he springs from prison to go after her. And then there's a, the other main character is a corrupt border cop who teams up with that guy. So you got two teams. You have Malone and the girl and, and this cop and this uh, gangster who are basically chasing each other from, from Tijuana to, uh, to L.A. And then you find out, you know, what happens happens. So you got to read the book for that. But uh, I'll start with... a. The first chapter, and this is Lou's uh, kind of describing her life in Tijuana. Luz didn't think things through the first time she tried to get away. It was a spur-of-the-moment decision. One night, Rolando beat her so badly that she peed blood. And the next morning, as soon as he and his bodyguards left the house, she limped downstairs and out the front door, across the yard, and through the gate in the high concrete fence that surrounded the property. Barefoot and wearing only panties and a black silk robe, she stumbled down the street trying to hail a taxi. The drivers slowed and stared, but none would stop. Tears of frustration blurred her vision. She tripped and fell, fell but got quickly back to her feet. Scraped knees and skinned palms wouldn't keep her from Isabel's third birthday party. She was determined to be there, no matter what. She'd appear at the front door with a giant pink cake and an armful of gifts, and oh, wouldn't Isabel be surprised to see her. Maria, the housekeeper, stuck her head out of the gate and shouted for her to stop. Luz tried to run, but the pills that got her through the day back then made her feel like she was slogging through mud. Maria caught up to her before she reached the corner and grabbed her by the hair. Luz fought back, kicking and clawing, but then El Toro, the house guard, was there too. Help me, Luz called to a man on a bicycle, pleased to a woman pushing a stroller. But they, like the taxi drivers, ignored her. This was Tijuana, see, and if you valued your life and the lives of your family, you minded your own business. El Toro and Maria dragged her back to the house. They locked her in her room and laughed at her vows to get even. Rolando killed her dog when they told him that she'd run away. He stormed into the bedroom and yanked Pepito from her arms, placed the heel of his boot on the toy poodle's head, and crushed its skull. Then he forced Luz to the floor, twisted her arms up behind her back, and raped her there on the white shag carpet. Why do you make me do these things, he screamed at her when he finished. Why do you make me hate myself? It will be different this time. In the years since she last made a run for it, Luz has been putting together a plan. And now, finally, she's ready. Isabel turns four next Tuesday, and Mommy will be there to watch her blow out the candles on her birthday cake, or Mommy will die trying. She pretends to be asleep when Rolando comes out of the bathroom. He squeezes her foot through the sheet. Hey, sleepy, he says, time for breakfast. Mmm, Luz says, give me a minute. He's dressed for business in a dark suit, white shirt, and shiny black cowboy boots. 
Luz has consulted the calendar on his desk and committed today's schedule to memory. An 11 a.m. meeting at Las Rocas Resort with Mr. Volkers from San Diego to talk about opening another KFC franchise. Lunch at the same place with Alvarez, his attorney, then on to Ensenada to see Flacco. Though it says on the calendar that they'll be discussing horses, the real topic will be a shipment of heroin from Apatzingan. Luz has been listening closely to her husband over the last year and has learned all of his nicknames and code words. So Flacco and the dope, and afterward dinner with the whore he keeps down there. This means he won't be home until at least nine. When he goes downstairs, Luz crawls out of bed and walks into the bathroom to wash her face. The room still reeks of his shit. She brushes her long black hair until it shines, lifting it off the back of her neck to glance at the words tattooed there, Angel Baby. She convinced Rolando to let her get the tattoo by telling him it was a pet name for him. In reality, it's the title of a song she used to sing to Isabel during the year they had together. She's been careful never to let Rolando find out about the little girl because she knows he'd use anything she loved as a weapon against her or a chain to bind her more tightly to him. Wrapping herself in a white robe, she leaves the bedroom. Her footsteps echo in the two-story foyer as she walks down the marble staircase. On the street, Rolando is known as El Principe, the prince, and this is his palace. A 4,000-square-foot house with five bedrooms, six bathrooms, faux granite and gold leaf everywhere, leather and stainless steel. Everything is expensive, but nothing goes with anything, with anything else. Rolando decorated by pointing at pictures in magazines. A fake Picasso hangs above a scorpion made of rusted iron. A $10,000 couch from Milan sits between two lazy boy recliners with massage motors and heated cushions. And the house itself is so poorly constructed, new cracks appear in the wall every day. It's a stucco and laminate fantasy that won't last much longer than Rolando does. He stands and pulls out a chair for her when she enters the dining room. Such a gentleman this morning. It's because he, she let him fuck her last night and even went to the trouble of thrashing and moaning as if she were enjoying it. She wants him to think everything is perfect between the two of them when he leaves today. She fumbles with her napkin, yawns, and looks confused about where she is, playing the stoned princess to the hilt. It's an act she's perfected in the six months since she managed to wean herself off the pills, the Xanax and Valium, Vicodin and Oxycontin, that used to keep her from adding up her sins and hanging herself in the shower. She threw away the dope because she needed a clear head to plan her escape and because she didn't want to be strung out when she finally got free. But she's kept Rolando thinking that she's using. He'd become suspicious if, she, if he discovered she'd stopped. And besides, he likes her high. It makes him feel superior. He returns to his chair across from her and she smiles and asks in a sleepy baby voice when he's going to take her shopping for the shoes she showed him on TV the other night. Shoes, he says. You think I have time to think about shoes? She plays the game, scrunching her face into a pout and whining, but you said, Poppy, you said I could have them. I did, Rolando says. You know you did, Luz says, but when? How about when we fly to Acapulco this weekend, Rolando says. Acapulco, Luz exclaims and claps her hands. It wasn't easy quitting the drugs. In fact, to this day, there are moments like this when her mind and body begged for the distance they provided. When this happens, she conjures up the face of her daughter, and prays to it as fervently as a primitive, supplicating the only star in a pitch-black sky. Maria bustles in from the kitchen carrying a platter of pan dulce and a, and a bowl of fruit salad. Good morning, senora, she says to Luz, sweet as can be. They've made peace since Luz tried to walk away, or at least Maria thinks they have. Luz has done her best to convince the housekeeper that she barely remembers that day, but she still can't tell if she's bought it. The woman is hard to read. Maria lifts the carafe from the table and fills Luz's cup with coffee. 
The sleeve of her blouse slides up to reveal a scar on her arm. It's from an injury she got in prison where she did time for fencing stolen goods. She was the mother of one of Rolando's boyhood friends, a kid named Gato who was killed early in Rolando's rise. Gato made Rolando swear he'd take care of his mother if anything happened to him, and Rolando kept the promise by hiring the woman to oversee his household. Do you need anything else, Senora Maria? asks Luz. No, gracias, Luz replies. Senora, uh, Maria says to Rolando. Senor, Maria says to Rolando. No, Maria, gracias, Rolando says. The woman returns to the kitchen, and Rolando spoons fruit salad onto a plate and hands the plate to Luz. One of the parrots he keeps caged in the living room squawks, My name is Gladiator. My name is Gladiator. Where are you going all dressed up, Luz says. To fight a bull. What do you think, Rolando says, then bites into a pastry. Luz pokes at her fruit. Her stomach is tight with anticipation and worry, but she manages to swallow a piece of pineapple and make sure Rolando sees her eating. And you, he says, with food in his mouth, the fucking pig. Let me guess, a massage, a manicure? Both, Luz says with a laugh. Why not? It's a good life, no, Rolando says. A good life, Luz says, the words burning her tongue. She reaches across the table and takes one of Rolando's hands in both of hers. Rolando lifts a red rose from the vase on the table and slips it into her hair above her ear. He smiles and starts to say something tender, but then his phone rings and his eyes go ice cold. That human thing is all an act. He can turn it on and off like that. What he is inside is a monster, a shark, something soulless and ravenous. He stands and walks out of the room, barks K into the phone. El Toro, the guard who helped drag, drag Luz back last year, lumbers in and grabs a sugary concha off the plate of pastries. Luz can feel the man's contempt for her, the boss's dope fiend whore of a wife, has always felt it. Tell El Principe the car is ready, he says before walking back to the kitchen. Luz passes the message on to Rolando when he finishes the call. He kisses her on the forehead and leaves without another word. She watches from the window as he climbs into the Escalade with Ozzy and Esteban. El Toro opens the heavy iron gate and gives a quick wave as the truck drives out. And so, it's time. Her first stop is the bedroom, where she turns on the television and crawls between the sheets again like she does every morning. Today, though, her fists are clenched and sweaty, her legs tense to run. At 10.15, there's a knock at the door. Yes, she croaks, making her voice froggy. Maria pokes her head in. Any laundry, senora? Luz motions to the bathroom without looking away from the TV and ignores Maria as she walks in and empties the hamper into a plastic bag and walks out again. She begins counting to 30 after the housekeeper closes the door, but only gets to 10 before she can't stand it anymore and pops out of bed. She has 15 minutes to make her escape. She knows Maria's and El Toro's schedules as well as she knows Rolando's. Maria will be in the laundry room in the back of the house, and El Toro sneaks off to the garage every day from 10 to 10.30 to watch a soap opera on a little TV he keeps out there. She dresses quickly in jeans, a t-shirt, and tennis shoes. No makeup, no jewelry. A fleece jacket and a pink baseball cap, nothing more. Go into a zebra-striped backpack, something a child would carry to school. She's traveling fast and light. Anything else she needs, she can pick up when she reaches the U.S. Heart pounding, she opens the door and checks the hall, then quietly descends the stairs. A radio plays in the room where Maria is sorting clothes, the DJ telling a dirty joke. When she reaches the ground floor, she hurries to Rolando's office and slips inside. On the walls are shelves of books the man has never read, the heads of animals somebody else shot, and paintings of sailing ships and knights in armor bought in bulk by a decorator. The only personal addition is a large framed photograph of a dark-haired woman lying nude on a bed, legs spread wide. Rolando likes to tell people that it reminds him of Luz. As soon as the door closes behind her, Luz relaxes a bit. 
She's been in here on numerous dry runs during the past few months, and now it's only a matter of following her plan. She goes to the big wooden desk and picks up the letter opener, a German World War II dagger with a swastika engraved on the handle, and uses it to pry open the lock on the top, dress, top drawer. Inside is a fluorescent green post-it with the name Angelina and a phone number scrawled on it. Angelina is the name Rolando's mother gave to a daughter who died more than 20 years ago, the one the whole family now reveres as a stillborn saint. And the number, entered backward, is the combination to the wall safe, which is hidden behind a painting of a wolf hunt, men with fur hats riding in sleds, rifles, bloody snow. Luce sets the painting on the floor and punches the numbers into the safe's keypad. The lock kick clicks and the safe swings open. Inside are stacks and stacks of rubber-banded U.S. currency, hundreds and twenties, and a shiny silver gun. Rolando's custom-engraved silver-plated Colt 45. Snakes twine around skulls on the barrel, and an image of Santa Muerte is carved in ivory on the grip. Luce transfers the money, all of it, to the backpack and lays the gun on top. Bowing her head, she murmurs a childhood prayer, and God's name is still on her lips as she grabs the pack, stands, and opens the office door. You dropped this, Senora, Maria says, holding out the rose that Rolando stuck in Luz's hair at breakfast, out here in the hallway. El Toro stands behind the woman, a mean grin on his ugly face. He's looking forward to hurting her. Both of them are. And then Rolando will finish the job. Luz backs up and reaches into the pack for the 45. Rolando taught her how to use it on the house's basement firing range. At first he had to force her because she couldn't stand the sound and the thump in her chest when the gun went off. But over the past year, thinking it was a skill that might come in handy during her escape, she's practiced whenever she could and become a pretty decent shot. She racks the slide and points the 45 with both hands, doesn't flinch at the boom, boom, boom when she squeezes the trigger. Maria flies backward into El Toro, a jagged black hole under her left eye, a bloody volcano erupting out of the back of her head. The other two rounds hit El Toro in the chest and throat. He and the housekeeper go down together, tangled in death. The horror of what she's just done paralyzes Luz for an instant, like an icy hand gripping her neck. When she can move again, she drops the gun into the backpack and steps over the bodies, being careful not to look down at them. There's only one thought in her head, Isabel. When the big front door doesn't open on the first try, she panics and jerks the knob a few times before realizing that the deadbolt is engaged. A second later, she's on the porch. Four seconds later, she's out the gate and on the street. Ten seconds later, she's gone. Another scrap swept up in the noisy, stinking whirl of the city. So, thank you. So you can see it starts with a bang, and, uh, you know, hopefully my intention was to capture the reader quickly and get them, keep them going through the whole book, which, you know, I hope I did. It's, it's doing, you know, it's doing pretty well. It got optioned by Warner Brothers. Uh, it's a finalist for the Hammett prize, which is from the International Association of Crime Writers. So it's uh, my, the thing I try to do with every book now is at least have something new happen. So those are things that haven't happened to the other ones. So each time, if, if something new can happen, I can, I can call it progress, you know, that, that my career is, uh, is, is moving on a, a, a little bit. Now, uh, I, I don't know uh, if most of you guys are, are, are you guys writing students, English students? Anybody interested in writing here? I mean, as a, as a career? No? Yeah? All right. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's, the way I see it, I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, go to writing school. So the, the way that I learned to write was basically by teaching myself. And uh, 
through constant practice. And the, the, the things that I would recommend to anybody in, in any kind of writing, if you're just doing, uh, you know, uh, reports and, and things like that, is that first you have to read uh, a ton, and you have to read a lot of stuff. You can't just read, if you're into science fiction and you want to be a writer, you can't just read science fiction writers. You have to read classic, you know, books. You should read uh, literary fiction. You know, you should read a little bit of everything in order that you're just not regurgitating the, the things that come out of your genre. If you want to be a literary fiction writer, which is now a genre unto itself, uh, you need to read other genres. You need to branch out in order to bring new things to, uh, to, your, uh, to what you're doing. And I think it's also a good idea not to just sit down to write a genre. You should sit down open-minded and say, what am I, you know, I'm going to write this story and let's see, where it, let's, let's see where it goes. You should also write a lot. Uh, that goes without saying. And you should write, I say, with a purpose, meaning don't write blogs, don't write, tweets don't count, journals don't count, exercises don't count. When you, sit, when you get serious about writing, you've got to sit down and start to try to construct things that are communicating with a reader. You've got to, that's got to be your intention. It's not just satisfying. I mean, you can do that, fine. I mean, that's, if that's all you want out of writing is to record your, you know, the, your daily life or to uh, share with your friends what movies you've seen and why you liked or liked, didn't write them. That's all good, but that's not writing fiction. When you want to write fiction, you have to sit down and start to, and, and learn how to tell a story, how to engage a reader and bring the reader a, a, along with you. And that counts for, for anything, even if you're writing, you know, so-called literary fiction or experimental fiction, there's still an element of communication between you and a reader, and, and you have to learn how to tell a story. So I always say that if you're going to get serious, you should sit down and start writing stories, you know, full-blown stories. With, you know, they don't have to have beginnings and middle and, uh, and ends because mine don't. So uh, you know, I can't give that advice, but you should start learning you know, your structure, what your voice is going to be. And that starts usually by imitating other people. You know, when I first started writing short stories, I was imitating, you know, Hemingway and Raymond Carver and Bukowski, Charles Bukowski. I mean, these were the people I was reading then and the people that my first, I was a huge Jack Kerouac fan. So these were the, the people that I was sort of emulating in the beginning. And you keep doing that and you keep throwing away the imitative stuff and you'll come up, you know, you'll eventually happen upon, if you're, if you're going to be a writer, you'll happen upon your, your style, which will be a, an, a combination of all these things plus something that you're going to bring on your own because another important thing is rhythm. And I don't know if rhythm can be taught. I don't know if it can be learned. But it's about reading and understanding that even when you're just doing a description of something, you're not just... The, the idea isn't just to get down exactly how it looked. You also have to think a lot about the words that you're using to do that and the way that they, they, ebb, and, they ebb and flow. And I've been doing it a long time, and so I kind of have a natural rhythm in my head. But you need to go back and read those and see if, you're, if it sounds melodious to your ear. And that's a, a really important thing that I'd see not a lot of people do. And that's what really puts you up to like the next, the next level, you know, a lot of these books that 
Like I'll just, for example, I'll pick like uh, crime novels. A lot of crime novels, these series books, they're not melodic at all. They're just, it's a straight resuscitation of facts, plot, uh, and, and details. And you read them and you can tell. And it's, it's a, a function of those guys have to write one book a year. You know, and some of them write more than that. So they're not, they're not sitting there and taking the time to, uh, to, to try to, to, to create this thing that is pleasing uh, on, on another level. But I think that's what separates the, uh, you know, I don't want to say the, the artists, but I always like to see writers that strive a little more, you know, even if they're doing genre liter that literature, that they're pushing it just, just a little bit more. And a big part of that is this melodicism, this rhythm that you're going to find. And that's something that you can't really steal from anyone. You're going to find that as you go on. You're going to find you use certain words, you use set certain sentence constructions, and uh, those are going to bug you because you're going to find you use them too much, and you have to find other ways. Uh, you know, I had the worst thing to do is when you finish a book and to go and uh, to do a spell to do a, a, a find a find what do you call it a find and uh, replace to put in a word and then find out, oh, my God, I used just, like, 20 times in one, one, one chapter. You know, like, he was just, she was just, it was just. And it drives you crazy. You can't even, you, you know, you, th you think you're good, and that's, like, such a rookie mistake. And so you have to go back and cut those out, or though, you know, I'm, I'm picking my own words, you know, just, though. You know, these, these things are sort of just words that have, like, constructs that I've fallen into. And that's, you know, where the editing comes in when you have to go back and, and rework it. That's another thing, editing. I read stuff all the time. People send me, you know, I always let, you know, I say, oh, well, send me what you're working on. And they send me this stuff, and you can tell it's the first time they've gone through it. They just put the last, you know, the last period on it and sent it out, and that's never going to work. I mean, I don't know any writers who are great on the first draft. I, don't, I probably don't know any writers who are good on the first draft. You have to go back in and uh, find your own way of editing. I, have a, I write in a weird way. Uh, I, I handwrite everything, number one, and it has to be these pencils and these notebooks. And I have two notebooks, so I'll write it, a first draft, and I have terrible, terrible handwriting. So within a day, I have to go and I copy it into another notebook. That's sort of like the first level of editing, and I try to write a little clearer there. But my handwriting is still terrible. So within a couple days, I ha once I get to a certain point, you know, a certain number of words, 1,000, 1,500 words, then I'll go to the computer and enter that in. And that's sort of like a third level of editing. So by the time I get to my first computer draft, I'm sort of already on third draft on, on the, the, the stuff I'm working on. Then, of course, I'm, I go back and reread everything, you know, it was easy when short stories, you could go back and read the whole story as you were, you know, what you did the day before, what you did the week before. You can go back and reread it. But when you get to a novel, you can't do that because it takes too long to go back and reread everything. So I had to kind of teach myself, all right, stop trying to go back and redo everything every day. You've got to let this part sit for, you know, a while and move on and edit in little chunks. Then when you're done, you come back and you do it. You go back and you edit it as a, as a whole. And then that takes... No, that's two or three times. Then if you're lucky enough to uh, get an editor, uh, you, they, they will have your, your, they'll have a pass they want to do. And luckily, 
because uh, one of the because I was a years and years an editor on magazines, editing uh, other people's writing, and believe me, heavy metal music writers, you know, there, there aren't many good ones. So you know, you had to go through and uh, and and make their stuff make sense. So that in a, in a way was great practice for being a writer was editing other people and. You know, you learned how to cut out fat and recombine sentences and, and get things going and to make these things sound, uh, you know, sound professional. And, of course, they never notice. You know, I guess that's what being a good editor is. They think, man, I'm good, you know. They don't even realize the time that you've, uh, that you've gone through. But that was great practice for me now because when I turn in my manuscripts, they're, like, practically clean because that's what I did professionally for, for a long, long time. So... At the same time that you're writing, it also helps to kind of cultivate an editing, you know, editing skills. You can learn that by, by editing yourself, by having a teacher or something that you turn it into because uh, that's important. If it comes in looking too rough, nobody's going to go for it. My other advice uh, about writing, uh, if you, if, there's a good chance you're not going to make a living doing it. You know, I got very lucky late. Uh, in life, and now I'm, you know, barely making a living doing it, you know, but, but I, you know, it's, it's, everything's good. Uh, so get a day job that you like. Get something that you can stand. You don't have to love it, but get something that you can, uh, that, that, that you can live with that uh, will help you. And in my case, I was an editor. I never wrote on any of my jobs. I, even when I worked on these magazines, I was managing editor, which meant I just edited, I put the magazines together. I tried to write journalism and things like that, record reviews, and A, I was no good at it, and B, it just took me so long. I would take so long to write this stupid 100-word record review that the $20 they were paying me, it wasn't worth it, you know? I mean, it, it just didn't, it, the, the time and the thing, you know, it, it didn't pan out. I'd rather devote that time to my fiction when I was teaching myself to write. So, uh you know, it, it might work for you that if you, you know, if you can get a writing job, maybe that won't, won't, won't bother you. But for me, it would have taken too much thought time away from going home. If I wrote all day at work, I wouldn't want to go home at night and put in those two hours every night, you know, sitting there and working. And, uh, you know, you, you get something that's going to make you, you know, that you're going to be able to get an apartment. And you're not going to have to struggle because in that way you get the routine if you're able to have the routine and you don't have to work crazy hours and 10 jobs, you're able to get that two hours blocked out every day and, you know, that you can, that you can work. Of course, you know, you're not going to be able to go out with your friends every night and, you know, it, it, it cuts into your social life a bit. But, hey, if you're serious, you know, that's what you want to do. You've got all weekend to, to, you know, it doesn't have to be seven nights a week. It can be five nights a week. It can be four nights a week. But you've got to devote time to it and it's got to be time like I said, not journaling, not blogging, where you are sitting down and working on projects. You know, like that, actually, I'm going to write this story and I'm going to send it to this magazine and that magazine. And, you know, you're, 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 you're writing with a purpose. Uh, a good thing is to, I say, listen. So take off headphones, stop looking at the phone. You know, when you're out and about, always be present in where you are. And, and looking for details in, in landscape or listening to people's conversations and picking, picking stuff up. I mean, it's, uh, 
I, I always tell people I could write a book of stories walking from my house. I live in Echo Park. Walking from my house in Echo Park to the coffee shop. I mean, there's just so much going on out there. And people say, well, I don't have anything to write about. But it's all, it's all right out there. I mean, of course, yeah, if you're young, you haven't lived, you know, a hugely long life. And I remember when I was first starting to write stories at, uh, in college. I was, what, 18, 19 years old. And all the people in the class were writing stories about their fraternities, their sororities, their uh, summer trip to Europe, you know, these college kid stuff. And like right then, I kind of said, I'm not ever going to write about college. I'm not ever going to write about my life, like my day-to-day life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about other people. But that's sort of specious because you're writing about yourself. Even when you're writing about these other people, you, you're, you're, you're writing about yourself. It's all you. I once heard someone say that, uh, you know, when you have a dream that, and you, like, you dream about your mom or your boyfriend or whatever, that's not your mom or your boyfriend. That's your creation of your mom and your boyfriend, your picture of them. It's the same thing with writing. When you're creating these characters, when I'm creating these, like a villain in, this, in these books, and they do horrible things and they're horrible people, but at the same time, because I've created them, there's a part of me in there. There's that I had to sit down and think those thoughts that they're thinking. And I never, it's one of the things that I do when I'm creating characters, I never think of them as the other, like, okay, this is the bad guy, and he is someone so alien to me, like, I don't even know where he comes from. I know exactly where he comes from. And that's one of the things I do with all the characters, try to bring you into them. And a lot of times my characters are a little bit unsavory, and uh, they've done bad things, they've made bad choices, they, uh, you know, aren't the nicest people in the world. But my hope is that through writing about these people, that... uh, I'm going to give the reader some a little bit of insight into a kind of person they might not have considered before, or you know you're going to you're not going to like this person, you know you may not uh, agree with what they do, but you're going to understand why they're doing what they're doing, and you know whether that's an acceptable reason or not, that's you know up to to you, but you are going to understand where they came from. Nobody's going to act just because they're evil you know, or just because they're good. Like, I don't believe the world is black and white like that. The world is, is gray. And so that's where you, you try, I try to create characters like that. Now, it, you know, it leads to some weird situations. Like in my first book of stories, like uh, I remember being at a thing like this and I took questions and some said, why do you always write about such losers? I was like, God, like all those people in that book are me. Like this person's kind of calling me a loser, you know. Like, uh, you know, I, you, I kind of get insulted when people get get mad, you know, get, have problems with my characters because in a way they're you know they're having a problem with me. But that's you know the the way you get that is just by you know you listen, you take details from everywhere, and then you run it through your filter. And it's your job as a writer to develop your filter. Like you're developing your rhythm. Well, you have to develop your filter, too, of what gets through to you, what's important to you. And by writing these stories and letting people see them, you're going to see if your filter works with the reader. Does the re- is the reader interested in what you're interested in? Or are you, you know, on the wrong track? Maybe you have a terrible filter and you'll never be a writer. Maybe you just need to adjust the things that you're emphasizing, you know, uh, and, and, and just shift it a little in order to get more reader appreciation. Uh, you know, it's a, tricky, it's a tricky little dance trying to develop a, a, a style. It's just 
banging away at it and seeing what people are going to accept. I mean, I don't know how a magazine, magazines could have rejected stories of mine 20 times. And then towards, uh, uh, at one time after I got published, well, I do know this, after I got published uh, a couple times, I sent a story back. I didn't even rewrite it. I sent it to a, a magazine that I'd sent it to four years earlier when I wasn't published. And they took them. They took the story, and you know. So that's you know. There's that. That as soon as you start publishing a little, you you get it. But I also feel that you just over the course of time you're gonna develop, if you really are serious about it, about communicating with other people and being that kind of writer. Some people don't want to be that kind of writer. Some people, you know, ju like I said, just want to sit and and work in a room. I don't really understand that because to me, writing is communication, and that's where I communicate best. You know, as a person, I'm, you know, just like kind of a boring, you know, person. But when I sit down and I start writing about things, like, that's when, like, the, the, the real totality of what's going on. And so I'm able to get that down and explain it and get it down on paper for people. And that's when I'm, I feel I'm at, you know, my, my best and most uh, communicative. Uh, you know, that's, that might just be a psychological problem. I don't know. But maybe that's something common to other writers. I don't know many other writers. I was telling Hari. I don't, uh, in, uh, as I was coming up, I was, you know, I just didn't, I never hung around writers. I hung around, uh, I don't gamblers and, you know, uh, plumbers and just people who did regular things. And uh, I even now, I was telling him, I'd rather hang around a, a plumber than a writer any day. Because there's no, so it's no good for me to sit and talk to a writer about writing. I don't, I don't need that conversation. Uh, what I need is to get stuff I can steal from people. And uh, yeah, the, stu the stuff you can steal is from the, the real people. I don't want to say real. Well, but I mean that like people who are actually doing things and going out. Not like me sitting in a room staring at a, a sheet of paper or thinking about staring at a sheet of paper. Uh, you want to? I like to. I like to get stuff in the details, the gritty details of what they do. I want to know the names of their tools. I want to know, you know, what they call this pipe. I mean, those are the things that are going to make you make when you when you start creating these characters who aren't you, but who are you. Uh, you those are the things that are going to make that it real to people. And you know, you don't need to load up on a ton of it because then it starts looking stupid. If you're just if you're writing about a plumber and every other word is some plumbing term. That's no good, you know. You just need to stick one or two in there, and people will, will people will think you know more than you do. Believe me, you know. If you, I've written about prison, and you know, I get prisons who think I've been in prison, and you know, it's like, no, 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 I, I made all that up. You know, it's a, I'm just a, a good researcher. Uh, a good place for that kind of detail is the internet. You know, you guys are lucky now. You have the internet. We didn't have it when I first started. I'm lucky now. Because uh, it gives me something to do when I uh, can't write, I research, you know, and that's well. I'll just I wrote about a Tijuana prison in this book, and I just went and researched that prison. I went on and found footage of the inside of the prison from some evangelical group that would go there and preach. I found a history of the prison. I found photos. I found everything I needed online, and never had to set foot inside La Mesa prison. But yet, you know, it comes off as as real, and people believe it. So. You, you don't have to have done everything in your books. You can fool people. And don't be afraid to stretch yourself and go a little farther. Just uh, get, get the good details down. Another thing uh, that uh, probably is good if you plan to be a uh, writer long term is uh, get a, uh, an understanding partner. <laughs> because 
you know, I'm very lucky that I have a girlfriend that I've had for, you know, I can't even call her a girlfriend, like 23 years. So she's been, uh, you know, along on this, on this journey. And uh, she understands that I go into that room every night and work, and, you know, she doesn't have a problem with that. You know, in fact, she's very encouraging about it and yells at me to get in there when I try not to go in there. So it's, uh, it's you, you need someone like that in your life to, if, if you need to have someone in your life, you need someone like that who is not against you, opposing you. Uh, why don't you stop messing around and, you know, get a real job or let's go out and do this and that. So uh, you, you can't have that kind of stress on you, I don't think, and, uh, and, and be a writer. I'm sure there are writers who have done it, but it, it, it wouldn't have worked for me. I mean, I need that calm, you know, the, the calm that is created in that, in that kind of thing. Uh, well, I think I've gone through all my... My writing uh, stuff, God, it's already time, huh, almost. Did you guys, anybody have any questions? Yeah? Come on, someone. I'm sorry, say, repeat that? Yeah. I, I have never, oh, she's asking, uh, she said, mentioned that in college I said I hated being critiqued. And uh, she asked if there was some, what point did I uh, decide to take critique? I still hate critique. I mean, when I get, when the, that first letter comes from the publisher, or sometimes when you send out a story, they'll send you back notes like, well, I think this character, this or that, and I still hate it. I get insulted. I get mad. I go pout in my room for like a day, but then, you know, you got to man up. I mean, you just say, okay, you know, this is what they want to do. And the, the weird thing about publishers is they'll always tell you, uh, you, it's your choice. You can make the changes if you want to change. And, you know, if not, you know, then it just goes out the way you want it. So I, I'm lucky I found that my editor, you know, even though we disagree about some stuff, uh, She's usually pretty good and has, has a good eye, and I, I like her changes. And when it goes through the, the, copy, the copy editor, they'll ask you about things like, how come everybody in this whole book drinks 7-Up every time? And you realize that you didn't mean to do that. You just, every time somebody grabbed a soft drink, it was 7-Up. So you have to go through and, and change that up. It's like finding those words that are irritating. It's, it's something that you're doing unconsciously. So I, I, I've had a pretty good, uh, you know, relationship with them, and I... It still hurts every time. Now I, I wrote the I wrote the screenplay for Angel Baby, and that was a terrible thing too. I mean, they, they really critique you in the film business. I mean, they tear the stuff apart and they put it back together, and so you know you, you just have to. Luckily, I'd been a little bit prepared for it by the publishing business, but you just have to suck it up and and go into it, even though you know you don't agree, maybe. And in the movie business, they don't tell you you can leave it. It's up to you. <laughs> the movie business, it's you do this or, you know, we're just not going to do it anymore. So, uh, you know, it's been, it's been an interesting, this is my first time to ever do that, so it's been an interesting thing. One, one more thing about an agent. At some, you know, people want to be professional writers. They get really, like, obsessed with getting an agent. And uh, don't worry about that. When it's time for you to get an agent, that's when you're, you're going to have your, you, you don't go to an agent until you have finished product. You don't need one until until you're until it's time to go. So you have your full novel. You don't need one when you have half a novel. You know you don't need one when you got three stories. 
wait till the time is right, and then there are ways, it's easier now, there are ways to go out and get an agent. In fact, you know, if anybody writes anything and finishes it, you can send it to me, and I'll pass it on to my agent, you know, so you, at least someone will look at it. But I, I don't want three stories, and I don't want half a novel. I want a full novel that you've edited, that you're ready to send out to, for serious consideration that you feel is ready to be uh, published tomorrow. You know, I mean, that's, that's the way, that's the time when you go to the agent because that's what he's looking for or she. They're looking for a product to sell right now. You know, it's not, they're not there to help you along and to offer you encouragement. And I mean, they'll pretend to do that, but that's not what they're really doing. They're just saying, get me that thing so I can sell it and get my percentage, you know, to pay my office rent. So uh, that's a, a little bit of advice. Another question? Uh, yes, I, I, as I said, this one is it's sold to Warner Brothers, but um, I don't know what's going to happen. I wrote the screenplay. They have it now, and it's sort of just, it's, it's been there. It only was a month ago, so it's in limbo now. We'll see if they ever make it or whether it will just be another one of the hundreds of movies that never get made. Uh, with me, it's it's just something that's always been there since I was a kid. And as I said, like that's when I feel that I'm at my smartest. You know, I'm at my uh, most eloquent. Uh, when I'm at my kindest, I mean, is when I'm when I'm putting things down on paper. In person, I'm you know a, kind of a bastard. But uh, you know, there I'm uh, my worldview. You know, is 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 much more open, and I'm able to communicate it articulately, and so it's always been just my form of of communication. Luckily, things have come together. I mean, I when I had no hope of doing this as a career, I did it, and I was going to keep doing it. If I had never gotten a book published, I would have still been doing that as a hobby, because it just it made me feel good. Uh, I felt I had some things to say, and. Uh, a way to say them that might, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but I really do believe in that thing where by writing about these characters, I'm, I'm, ex, I'm expanding the, the reader's mind a little bit where they're going to, I write about, a, in, in one of the books, I write about a, one of the guys standing in front of seven, uh, in front of Home Depot, a jornalero, a day worker. And the way I write about him, I want the reader to never look at, a, at that guy again, you know, at those people in the same way, you know, as just, there's that guy. I want them to realize they have a rich inner life. It won't be the inner life of my character, that the one I wrote, but to understand that those people are having, you know, are having deep thoughts and and crises, and there's a whole life going on that everyone you see is leading a very very deep life. And the great thing about being a writer is that you get to go in and tell those stories and bring them to other people and hopefully bring, uh, you know people closer together. I know it sounds cheesy, but I'll end it at that. You know, no, I've just, it's been a continuous thing. I, I got serious about 
24, I think, is when I started writing every night. And it's, I haven't had a writer's block yet. I haven't had any kind of crisis. Of course, every day I have a writer's block. When I sit down, I go, I, I can't do this. I forgot how to do it overnight. And then, you know, it, you sit down and you force yourself. And some days it's going to be two words, you know, and you're going to just feel like an idiot. Some days it's going to be 500 words, and you're going to say, I'm a genius. You know, I mean, it's, it's weathering it. You know, you just you, you pound it out. You put in those two hours, no matter what, and something's going to happen. You're either going to learn you are a writer, or you're going to realize, hey, I'd rather be, you know, playing hockey or, or whatever. You know, you'd rather be doing something else than, than, than this. If you're a writer, you're going to say, this is what I like doing. Thank you very much. I just want to share with you one small excerpt from a story by Richard Lang called Bank of America. It's a young kid talking with his father about, well, you'll see. This is the man who found out he was a robot, he explains. This is the son. He watched in the mirror and took off his face, and there was a robot head, head underneath. Now he drinks oil and is very, very sad. He gets mad sometimes and breaks things. Does he have any friends, I ask. This is the father. And a little bit later he says, here's $10. Go buy yourself a new head. He can't hear you, Sam says. He's got robot ears too. Thank you, Richard Lang, for reminding us once again that what, what writers do is to take off those false heads and discover the human heads underneath Thank you very much. And on behalf of the college, here's a token of our appreciation. Oh, thank you. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. <laughs>